over one half of teenage girls and nearly one third of teenage boys use unhealthy weight control behaviors such as skipping meals, fasting, smoking cigarettes, vomiting, and taking laxatives. Welcome to Kids Can Healthy Kids, Better World, a podcast from Action for Healthy Kids. Hello and welcome back to Kids Can, presented by Action for Healthy Kids, a show highlighting everyday issues children face today and featuring conversations on how you can help the kids in your life. I'm your host, Rob Bisegli. On the show today, we're chatting with director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy, Marlene Schwartz. Marlene is here to discuss her thoughts on some of the challenges around summer feeding programs for children, weight bias and stigma, nutrition policies at a district and school level, and so much more. Dr. Schwartz, it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. We at Action for Healthy Kids consider child health a basic human right, as I think you know, and there probably is no more foundational right for kids than the right to nutritious foods, which is a cornerstone of child health and development. So our audience knows the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Health, for which you are the director, promotes solutions to food insecurity, poor diet quality, and weight bias through research and policy. It's a multidisciplinary policy research center, and it's dedicated to providing high-level expertise and guidance on food marketing to children, food assistance programs, food and nutrition-related policies, and policies to reduce weight bias. And since the inception of the center, it has been a place where science and public policy intersect and where innovation linked to action is a guiding philosophy. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. Is there anything else you would like our listeners to know about your work at the Rudd Center? I think that what's unique about the Rudd Center is that we really try to do research that answers specific policy questions in a timely manner. And so a lot of research centers, you know, take on a a particular topic area and then they'll do a study. They'll take the findings from that one study, make a slight change and then do another very similar study. And it's and that's really how science works in most academic institutions in that sort of methodical way. We decided that instead of doing it that way, we really try to interact with people like at Action for Healthy Kids who are in the field, who are doing the work, who are trying to make the changes that we want to see in our society. And we ask ourselves, what can we do that will make that job more effective, will help us understand what really works? And so we tend to jump around a lot more, but it also makes the work a lot more exciting. Yeah, well, you do a great job of it. So we at Action for Other Kids, and I know a lot of the people who work with kids and around child health issues rely on the work that you do at the Rudd Center so much. So such a fantastic job you're doing. Thank you. Yeah. And so as you might know, the premise of the podcast, and for sure, all of the work at Action for Healthy Kids, is that our early life experiences and the adults who care for us have a transformative impact on our lives. So I was hoping you could tell me about a transformative experience from your childhood or early life that had a big impact on you. So that's such an interesting question. And I was able to give it a little bit of thought And the first thing that really came to me was an experience I had in high school. So the sort of extracurricular and elective area that I focused on in high school was theater and drama, in addition to the regular academic 
subjects. And so I started taking drama class in 10th grade. But what was transformative was my senior year, the director of the department asked me if I would like to direct a play, sort of a student-led play. And the, the play that we decided to do was a musical, Free to Be You and Me, you might remember, was very popular in the late 70s. This was during the 80s. And I think having that opportunity to have a leadership role with my peers at that age, and I had to get everybody to work together. Everyone had their own part that they needed to play in order to make the whole thing work. It definitely gave me a level of confidence that I hadn't had before. And looking back now, you know, this far into my career, looking back, like what was the most important thing I learned in high school? That might have been it. I think that the skills that I developed doing that probably were some of the most useful skills that I had going into a career as a researcher, and particularly a researcher who really tries to spend a lot of time communicating about the work that we do and interacting with different audiences. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think that it impacted my life in that it helped me feel like I could be an effective leader, that I could find ways to take, you know, a diverse group of people and figure out how to make us really into a team and work together. And so I think running a research center is really all about that. So that definitely impacted my life. And also just the confidence to be able to get up and speak in front of people and to try to run the rehearsals and then provide feedback on the performances. I mean, those are really skills that I've used as a professor in terms of teaching and then also working with students. Yeah. One interesting aspect of COVID is the impact it has had on our school feeding programs and our safety net in general. What can you tell us about what has taken place with school meal programs over the last couple of years? So I've been studying school meal programs for probably 10 to 15 years, and I've always been a fan of the work that the food service directors do, but my respect for them over the last couple of years has really skyrocketed. So back in March of 2020, the school buildings were shutting down, and what ended up happening was that the food service programs had to essentially pivot from being a program focused on feeding students in the cafeteria in the school building to almost like a grab-and-go restaurant. And so they needed to focus on what can we create that will be packaged, can stay safe, that we can have outside so that families can come pick it up. And we actually did a study during the summer of 2020, looking back, trying to understand all of the things that they needed to do to make that shift. And what we really learned was that they had to be incredibly flexible And they would try something. If it didn't work, they would try something else. And I think the positive thing is it also really helped people appreciate the role of the school meal program, that families that perhaps hadn't taken part in it before now because of job loss and and other financial stressors were so appreciative of having those meals available for their children. So participation, we found, actually was quite high in the program during that spring. So I think it's helped raise people's awareness of the importance of the program. And I think that the opportunity to be able to effectively serve the meals at no cost to all children in the school over the past school year that we've had has also really helped. And it's really now been two years. They've been able to 
provide meals for everybody. And I think participation has gone way up. And it's really just become much more a regular part of the school day, and not something that's sort of a special program that only some kids participate in. Yeah, you mentioned the flexibility by the school feeding programs. Is there a story or an example that stands out for you? Well, I think that, you know, there was one town in Connecticut where they knew that they needed to put their grab-and-go distribution centers where families could reach them. And the easiest thing would have been to just put them in the schools and figure that everybody knows where the school is and they'll just come pick it up. But they also knew that a lot of the families they were most concerned about didn't really live near the schools. And so what they did is they collaborated with the city officials and find places where they knew most families that needed the meals would be able to walk to get them. They hadn't done that sort of thing before. You know, usually the food service director works at the school and that's all they do. But this was really an example of sort of the community coming together and different leaders in the community working collaboratively. Another example was trying to really coordinate with the charitable food system. So there are food pantries in many communities. And of course, they have also been incredibly important during the pandemic. And we saw examples of the food service director and the person who ran the food pantry coming together and really supporting each other's programs. So for example, we heard a story of a distribution site for school meals where they would hand out a little map saying, here's how you get from here to the food pantry if you want to go get more food for the family. And at the same time, the food pantry was a place where they would let families know you can get free meals for your children from this site. So that level of coordination was, I think, really wonderful and something that, you know, we hadn't seen before. We've been working on school meals all together for quite a long time, too. And one of the things that we have noticed and really begun to work on is feeding programs in schools and the community, but also the nutrition education that is being provided to kids. Because without that nutrition education, not only will they not participate in the school meal programs properly and make the kinds of food choices that we'd all like to see them making, but the same impact will be had outside of the school building. And so I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but it seems to be a, a, an especially critical component that a lot of school districts and schools could use some help in dealing with. I agree 100%. And I'm smiling to myself because we created an assessment measure to look at school wellness policies. And we did this probably, gosh, I think it was like 2005 when we drafted the first version of it. And that's one of our items because I too am a complete believer that there is such an opportunity to connect what's happening in the cafeteria with what's happening in the classroom when it comes to nutrition education. And I've always thought, wouldn't it be amazing if the nutrition education happening in the classroom was very specifically connected to what was being served in the cafeteria that day? And there was sort of this back and forth communication between the food service and the teachers that were doing that nutrition ed. Yeah, it takes a, a level of coordination and sophistication that we may not have in all of our communities yet across the country. So it's something we're working on, too. Now that we're headed towards summer, what do you expect to happen to our school feeding programs? I am very worried about this summer. <laughs> so we did another study last summer. So as the food service during the school year was permitted to essentially provide no-cost meals to everybody. The summer food service, which 
a lot of people maybe haven't even heard of because it's a much smaller program, but many districts around the country offer summer meals during those months when school is not in session so that families can come and get breakfast and lunch for their children. Well, last summer, it was probably a banner year for the summer meal program because they were able to provide those meals again, for anybody who came and many districts that didn't typically qualify to provide summer meals because you do have to have a certain level of need in the district were permitted to apply and say that they thought that their community could use this resource. And so we had many more participants and we, again, found a lot of really creative strategies to try to make those meals very accessible to, again, to allow grab and go to, um, you know, create events that were sort of community events so families could come and get those meals. So that was all great. And that was really due to waivers that the USDA had permitted in congregate settings. So the students need to come and actually eat the meal on site. That was waived so that instead families could come and pick up meals. And we had families that would get an entire week's worth of meals at once. So they would be able to really kind of get a lot of food at one time. We had another district that would create seven days worth of meals, freeze it, put it on a school bus, and the school bus went around the town and families were able to go and pick up a seven-day pack of meals for their for their kids. None of that is going to be allowed this summer. So unfortunately, June 30th is the end date for those waivers. And so right now, I think there's quite a lot of concern that there will be families expecting and counting on those meals this summer, and they won't be able to access them in the same way. What happens to kids and their families, for that matter, during a typical summer when they don't have access to the kinds of programs that we were able to provide over the last couple of years? Well, we've always known from the research that summer, despite the vision you have for it, is not the healthiest time for kids, that body mass index tends to actually increase more rapidly during the summer than during the school year, that diet quality is not as high because the meals kids are getting don't meet those national school lunch standards. And unfortunately, their level of physical activity may not be as high either because they're not in school and they're spending more time at home. So my worry is that we will see that, that we will see a decrease in diet quality and all of the associated negative health consequences of that. So if you could wave your magic wand and enact policies or or different rules for our kids during the summertime, what would you be advocating for? I would advocate for the summer meal program to be allowed to be run all the time the way that it was run last summer. So I would waive the sort of limits in terms of who is allowed to participate, who in terms of the districts is allowed to participate in the program. I would make it so that districts could assess their own communities and decide if there was a need or not. And then I would definitely waive the congregate eating requirement because what that basically means is you need an adult to take a child to a site for breakfast have them sit there and eat their meal, and then come back later for lunch, have them sit there and eat that meal. And that's just not realistic. Parents are working. And in a lot of places, parents don't feel comfortable with their children walking by themselves to a site in order to eat a meal. So I think the grab and go was a huge success. And I would make that just a regular part of the program now. 
I recently read one of your new reports that's on your website on weight stigma and its impact on health and well-being. And some of the findings seem to be what I'll call expected, while others were quite unexpected, actually. As background, I should tell uh, the folks listening that you yourself have a background in psychology, you have a PhD in psychology from Yale, and also served as the co-director of the Yale Center for Eating and Weight Disorders from 1996 to 2006. Can you share some of your, your, your thinking about what some of the key issues are around weight stigma, especially for kids? So weight stigma is something that we've actually been studying since the Rudd Center started back in 2005. And sometimes people think that it's confusing that on the one hand, we are advocating for policies to address childhood obesity. And yet at the same time, we are also saying that we think that weight stigma is a problem and is something that needs, you know, we need to get rid of it. Because there's this false belief that if people feel stigmatized and they feel bad about their weight, that it will be a motivation for them to work harder to try to lose weight. So the first thing that we have found in study after study is that is not true. (laughs) So bullying someone, criticizing someone, Sometimes even making comments, parents sometimes make comments, they think they're being funny or they think they're being helpful. It's not. And so what we've really learned through the research is that feeling good about yourself and making healthy changes because of positive motivations, trying to do things that make you feel good, that's a way to go. So when you have public health messaging about weight, you really want to focus on the benefits of healthy nutrition, the benefits of physical activity, but you don't want to frame it all in terms of body mass index and trying to decrease your weight. Because as much as the two are related, weight is not a behavior. And this is really something that comes from my clinical days of treating eating disorders and treating obesity that I would have patients that would work incredibly hard to try to really focus on their diet quality, focus on being physically active. And sometimes they didn't see a change in the number on the scale. And they would get frustrated and feel like, why am I working so hard if I'm not actually losing any weight? And what I would try to remind them is that you're getting the benefit of those behaviors. And your behaviors are really the only thing you can control. That That's where you can put your focus and to try to really appreciate those benefits. And if you're so tied to the number on the scale, you're really setting yourself up for the risk of getting discouraged and getting frustrated and giving up altogether. And unfortunately, that is what a lot of people experience. What are the implications of that point for parents and family members? Well, one implication is don't talk to your child about the number on the scale. So I think... You certainly can talk to your child about different behaviors, about trying different foods, working together to create meals that incorporate lots of fruits and vegetables, trying to engage them in finding things they like, you know, testing new things, putting together meals together. I think that another tip for parents is if you have several children, like more than one, and one is overweight and one is not. Do not treat the overweight child differently than you treat the other child. I remember when I was a clinician having parents bring their child in for treatment who the the child that was overweight, and I would talk about, you need to have your home be 
a place where it's really easy to eat healthy. Like every time you turn around, there should be healthy food in front of you. And it's really hard to eat junk food because it's simply not there. Just keep it out of the house. And they would say, yes, but why should Johnny get punished because he's not overweight and he likes potato chips? And my response would be, well, but the potato chips aren't doing Johnny any good either. That you really want to make sure that you're creating a household and a home food environment where it's very easy for people to eat a variety and a range of healthy foods. And that, again, you can't just decide that because someone's weight is at a certain number that they don't need to worry about the nutritional quality of their diet. Yeah, that's great advice. In a recent article that I read, one of your colleagues, psychologist Rebecca Poole from the Rudd Center, made a really interesting point. She said, simply put, weight stigma is damaging to both emotional and physical health, and it decreases quality of life. This tells us that we need to address weight stigma not only as a social justice issue, but also as a public health issue. Can you expand on those points for us? Well, of course, I completely agree with my colleague, Rebecca Bull. I think that we need to recognize that criticizing someone because of their weight, not giving them the opportunities that they deserve. I mean, Rebecca's work has looked at the effect of weight stigma on decreasing the likelihood of getting a job, changing the way teachers look at students, thinking that a student is not as smart because of their weight, having health professionals assume that a patient won't be compliant with whatever they're asking them to do because of their weight. She has done so many studies documenting the reality of this stigma. In part, it's unconscious. I think there certainly are people out there who would just flat out tell you that they think that someone who's overweight is less intelligent or doesn't work as hard. But many people wouldn't say that directly. But if you use what we call the implicit associations test, which is like a task that really gets at some of your automatic associations, what we find is that a lot of us really just hold these assumptions because they're assumptions that our society has. And so it's really important to, number one, recognize how widespread this problem is and the fact that it is creating this unfair environment for a significant portion of our society and a lot of our children, and that unless we address it, it's really only going to get worse. And so we need to really create programs and do trainings to really help people recognize it and then very deliberately work against it so that children aren't made to feel less than or less competent because of their weight. I know you spent years treating people with eating disorders. You mentioned uh, some advice a couple of moments ago for people listening. Can you tell us, what did you learn from that experience? I think what I learned from my years treating eating disorders is that our culture is crazy. (laughs) So we basically give people completely mixed messages. We, on the one hand, think that it's perfectly fine to let food companies create this absolutely terrible foods, high sugar, high fat, high sodium. You know, think about the kid's cereal aisle. Think about your typical kid's meal at a restaurant. Think about all of the sugary drinks that are marketed to either children directly or parents of young children. So we think that that's fine and that these companies are allowed to do what they want. So they market these incredibly unhealthy foods. And then at the same time, 
We say your body needs to look this very specific way. And if it looks any different than that, then you're doing something wrong. And I really feel like it's that mixture of sort of creating an unhealthy environment and then somehow expecting people not to respond to the unhealthy environment is what creates the phenomenon that we see in terms of rates of both eating disorders and childhood obesity. And so I really feel like it's important to take on both, to work on changing the behavior of the food industry, to make it so that parents can really fight against all that pressure to buy kids' foods for their kids. And at the same time, really trying to strengthen people's understanding of how to eat a balanced diet and get that other stuff out of their face, out of the schools, out of their homes, off the kids' menu at the restaurants, just removing it so that it's just easier for everyone. Yeah, an interesting point that you're making is that many of the issues related to eating disorders and obesity are exactly the same issues. And quite a few of them are coming from our society, the way we've constructed our lives. Exactly. And that's what was so interesting. When I was a clinician, I treated anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, and obesity. So like this whole spectrum. And my advice was always the same. <laughs> like it didn't matter if it was a patient with anorexia nervosa who was sitting in front of me, who was significantly underweight, or a patient struggling with obesity who was sitting in front of me, who was overweight. I was always giving the same advice. The advice was really about focusing on your behaviors, having a balanced diet, being physically active, and then accepting your body where it was. You can only change what you're doing. And so that really, for me, made it clear that I wanted to focus on how do I make it easier for everybody to engage in these behaviors that I'm promoting to everyone who comes into my office. And I started to feel like I would be more effective if I focused on policies to change the environment rather than trying to work with individuals one at a time to sort of fight. Clearly, our issues with weight are connected with both genetics and the environment in which we live. With all of your years of experience as a psychologist and now as a researcher, how do you view the interrelationship between genetics and the environment? So there's a quote that a researcher came up with probably 25 years ago, which was genetics load the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. That really captures what I think is supported by the research, which is genetically, we all have a sort of a weight range that's kind of likely for our body. And there's probably a low end to it and a high end to it. And depending on our environment and depending on probably lots of other things, we'll either be here or here. But it's interesting, like a lot of the twin studies where they found, you know, identical twins who were raised by different families, a lot of times their weight is exactly the same. So I think it's a strong, genetics has a strong influence. But within that range, I think where you'll be has a lot to do with your environment. So Right now, if we think about like childhood obesity and the prevalence of childhood obesity in our society right now, there's 5% that would always be in the top 5%. <laughs> there's their kids who are always going to be at that end of the normal curve. But what we've seen are the kids who typically wouldn't have been shifting over there. And I 
completely hold the environment responsible for that shift. And I think if we can improve the environment, they'll shift back. And I think then we'll go back to the curve that we'll always have. There's always there's variability in body weight and there always will be. The idea isn't to have zero percent people, but we want to try to at least get people back to something that is more in the middle of genetically what they're predisposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. In the same article, Janet Tomiyama, I hope I'm saying that name properly, who's a professor of health and social psychology at University of California, Los Angeles. She said, people can't change the color of their skin, but there's this perception that people can diet their way out of obesity. That if someone has a larger body, it's a hundred percent of their fault. How do you react to that statement? I agree. I mean, I think that, and Janet is a very well-known weight stigma researcher, and I think she's also, you know, she's fighting fighting the same fight that we are in terms of trying to work on that problem. I don't think it's quite all or nothing. I think there is a range. And so I think that with my patients going back to just that experience, like I would have patients who might lose 10% of their body weight. So I would say the average patient I had with binge eating disorder, we had a lot of women with binge eating disorder who would present and they were older, maybe in their fifties or sixties, and they'd maybe go from 200 pounds to 180 pounds. Now that's meaningful. That's a 10% drop, but 180 pounds is not a weight that most women would think this is the ideal body weight for me as a female in our society. That's still definitely, they would feel frustrated and feel like, their body wasn't the weight that they wanted it to be. So I think you can make some progress as you change your behaviors, particularly if you have binge eating disorder. But to think that you're going to go all the way down to whatever, 125 pounds or something like that, I do think that that's as impossible as Janet said, changing the color of your skin. I think that that's such a dramatic change and would require so much intervention that I would not expect someone to be able to do that. Instead, I would encourage them to, again, focus on the healthy behaviors and trying to be as kind of well-nourished and physically active as they can. And then if their body lands here, then accept that that's where you are. Yeah. Yeah. From Action for Healthy Kids' standpoint, we're always so concerned, and especially what schools and families can do together. So from a genetics and environment perspective. How should schools and families approach issues around weight and kids? This is something that I feel like our field has really been struggling with for the last 20 years or so. Early on, there was this idea out there that schools could do BMI screening and then send letters home and tell parents, you know, this is where your child is in terms of their BMI. And if they were in the overweight or obese range that you would then make some suggestions. In the beginning, I thought that was a reasonable idea. And there was some research showing that it seemed like it didn't, there was a lot of concern about it causing negative consequences. And the early research didn't really indicate that that was happening. But I've come to really, I think, change my view on that. And what I would rather see 
is schools helping to assess the behaviors. So to do things like helping kids look at their own diet and think, you know, how many fruits and vegetables am I eating and what kind of beverages am I drinking and how many servings of dessert am I having and help them really look at their own diet, compare it to recommendations. And then if you want, maybe share that information with the family with ideas Or same thing with physical activity. Look at the amount of physical activity kids are getting. You could share that information with families and work collaboratively with families to think about ways to maximize opportunities for physical activity. But again, keep it focused on what people can actually change. And don't put in a BMI percentile number that I think is distracting And again, the child whose BMI percentile is in the, you know, normal range, but who has a terrible diet and is, you know, not physically active at all, you're not doing them any favors by not raising that with the family. So, I mean, I would just love for schools to say, you know, this is what we're doing. This is what our lunch program looks like. These are some of the after-school cooking activities that we offer. This is what our nutrition education program looks like. How can we work together? What can you guys do at home to reinforce what they're learning at school and vice versa? I think learning from families, what kinds of foods does your family like? Having, you know, food service programs really reflect the preferences of the cultures in that school. Are there favorites in the different groups that are in the school that the food service can incorporate? Every culture has healthy food options. So I think that there are always interesting things that could be done and creative things that could be done. So I would love to see more of things like that. Well, Marlene, I think we could talk about a variety of issues for quite a bit longer. So I'll ask you my final set of questions. As you look back on your life experiences and your career and all the work that you have done, the good and the bad, how do you hope that the experience of today's children will be different from or the same as yours? I look back on the food service when I was in school, and this was in the late 70s, early 80s. I graduated high school in 1984. And I have to say, it wasn't the best. (laughs) I think it was really when schools were starting to have a lot of processed food. It was starting to, you know, they were trying to mimic what was happening on kids' menus at fast food restaurants and things like that. I think that has changed a lot, particularly in the last few years since the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. But what I would love for going forward and for this generation is I would just love for schools to be a place where parents could have 100% confidence that the food there was nutritious, that it was fresh, that it was appealing, and that it was something that they really wanted their child to eat. And to be able to ensure that most kids had access to that healthy breakfast and that healthy lunch every day that they're in school, I feel like has the potential to really make a huge impact on the health of this generation. Thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. I want to say a big thank you to Marlene for taking the time to join us today and chat about some of the things we can do to improve the health and well-being of children in schools throughout the U.S. and world. Remember, you can always find more information by visiting our website at actionforhealthykids.org or checking us out on Instagram and Twitter. 
you're enjoying the show, please rate and leave a review so more people can find us or check out some of our past episodes. I'm Rob Bisegli, and thanks for listening to Kids Can from Action for Healthy Kids. Kids.